sixth chapter of our study this morning. Good morning. We've got some, we've got some cat songs with us this morning. This is a, it's a wonderful, exciting uh, morning for us. Can I, can I open us with, uh, with prayer and we'll, we'll begin? Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for this beautiful morning you've given to us. Another day to, uh, to worship you, to bring you honor. Another day to fellowship with, uh, with our brothers and sisters that are like us in that uh, they are sinners, they are rebels against you who have been rescued out of that, who have been uh, given a new heart that's able to love you, that's able to respond in faith to what you tell us about your Son. Lord, there's so much that ties us together here this morning, and we thank you for bringing us together. We pray as we, as we think through uh, the, the content of the chapter here in Sunday School, uh, and then as we move into the service and we, we worship you together in a number of ways, Lord, we pray that you would be honored and pleased by how we, how we conduct ourselves outwardly, and especially, Lord, by how we, uh, how we are responding to your truth inside of us. We all know that, uh, that we can uh, sing uh, appear on the outside one way and yet be cold and hard inside, and we do not want that. We, we ask that your Spirit would warm us to your truth, uh, that we would, we would sense just how precious all of the things are this morning that we are, that's, that's being laid before us. Lord, give us discernment and wisdom as we go through uh, this study, though, right now, and we thank you for it and for the ways that you will use it to bless us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, we're continuing uh, instruments in the Redeemer's hands, people in need of change, helping people in need of change. This is a book with 14 chapters, and we are on chapter 11. So we are really getting near to the, uh, to the end of the, of the whole study. Uh, I was trying to think of how we, how we could sum up what we've seen so far up to this point. And I've, I've, got, I've made an attempt here. I, I think that one way we could sum it up is to say generally that Trip is encouraging us to be more meaningfully connected to each other. And I think he'd say that the relationships that God has given us, um, as much as we sense the goodness and the, and the blessing that they are often, we are prone to undervalue them. We're prone to underemphasize them in our individualistic lives today. And we are prone to underuse them. And maybe that in particular in recent chapters, that we're prone to underuse the relationships God has given us in the way he's intended them to be used. It's, it's this general caution to us that we remember that he hasn't just given us the families and friends that he's given us for our sake. He's given them to us for the sake of using them to his glory. Um, and so we've dealt with a number of things. We've dealt with the idea of a willingness to enter each other's worlds. To not simply do in our entire life what we do with our houses, where we get home from work, open the garage, pull in, and close the garage door, and that's that. Our, 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 our life really shouldn't be described or characterized with that picture. We're called to enter each other's worlds. Uh, we're to strive to better identify with the suffering that God reveals around us, uh, which in a world like this, with lives like we have, it's not going to be difficult to find suffering going on around us. That is a, it's, not a, it's not a bad characterization of, of life. God gives us many good things, and yet our lives are filled with moments and times of suffering. 
Uh, we've dealt with the notion of uh, truly caring to get to know the people that God has placed among us. Um, and with more recently, with the idea of talking to those around us in intentional ways, thinking when someone comes uh, and they are hurting, they're, they're looking for me to be an encouragement to them. Uh, he gave us some very practical, even questions to ask uh, to pursue the relationships that God has given us. Um, but it's only just this morning, so we, we've been going through, he's sort of divided things up here in four sections. Uh, there are four ways to function as God's instruments uh, of change in people's lives. When we've been seeing these for a number of weeks now. Love, know, speak, and do. Um, all of what I just went through, kind of the list of things we've been discussing, even with that in mind, we're only just now getting to the, t- the section of speak. This is the first chapter in the speak section. And I really appreciated that he's taken the time and asked us to take the time uh, before thinking about speaking Uh, two chapters thinking about what it really is to love, uh, reminding us of the importance of knowing who it is we're speaking to, what is, what are the details of what's going on before we just open our mouths. I have made many a foot-in-mouth sort of comment before by speaking uh, when I didn't really know uh, and there's, of course, we're, we're limited in how much we're all, it's going to happen. Uh, but there are some, there have been some really helpful things that I have heard and, and thought through in, these, in this book that might help me to do that a little bit less. Um, the title of this chapter gives a good sense of the, the direction that we're going to be going. Um, think about this question. As God uses us as his instruments... And thinking specifically of him doing that in terms of our words to each other, since this is a chapter in the speak section, we want to ask, what is his, what is his goal? Uh, what is his goal for us when it comes to our words with one another? And here's what Tripp is going to say. He's going to say that God's goal in using the speech of his children is that through our speaking, those around us might come into confrontation with God. Now, he uses that word confrontation right at the beginning. Uh, And I don't know about you, but when I hear the word confrontation, I really just think of a negative thing. No one wants to. In fact, he he gave a pretty funny example early in the chapter where he he imagined someone um, knowing that that he, as as, as a pastor, was going to... He had called them and said, hey, we need to meet. We need to talk about this. There's a problem. And he imagined that person going home and saying... Betty, I get to be confronted by the pastor tomorrow. I can't wait. This is going to be great. And saying that's not the way that we, you know. Um, <laughs> but when we think about the notion of being confronted with God, all right, that, that, that's the context we need to, to hear this in. What is it like to be confronted with God? Is that, just, is that a negative thing? Um, as we're, we're, we're thinking of, and if you have the book, as, you, as you're reading and hearing him use the word confrontation, it's important to hear some of the clarifications that he made even. That when we talk about, clarifica- of, about confrontation, we're not talking about um, a number of things that we might think. We're not talking about intrusion. There is, a, there is an intruding way to confront someone. We're not talking about rudeness. We're not talking about meddling in the lives of someone in this sort of inappropriate way. Those are things we can do when we confront uh, but that's certainly not what the Bible calls us to, right? To live a life like this, a, a rude life of meddling. 
Um, so that's, that's not what, we are, uh, what we're talking about. And we're also not talking about, and this is important in its own right, um, what might happen when, if I were to try to, put, to, to apply this book, one of the first mistakes I might make is I might begin to think of myself as the Holy Spirit in someone else's life or as their conscience. Just, well, what's his name? The little grasshopper. Uh, Jiminy, yeah, that's right. Uh, I'm not your Jiminy Cricket, and that's not exactly what we're, being, what we're being called to do, to live as if we were the conscience of, of other people. So we have to know that we're not meaning these things, or at least we shouldn't be meaning these things when we're saying that we want someone, when, when I speak with them, I, my goal is that they be confronted with, with God. Um, generally speaking, when, I am, when, I'm, when I'm in someone's life, in a sense I'm in all of your lives, and in some more directly than others. I, I, have, I have immediate family here. There are uh, people that, that our kids are involved with each other, and so we see each other more. Uh, when I'm in someone's life, I hope that they are confronted when they get together with me with the joy of God. I hope that they are confronted with the peace of God and with the patience of God, with the goodness of God. Or how about um, with the self-sacrificing nature of Christ? I hope that that's what they're confronted with when they, are, when they come into contact with me. If someone has me in their life, and when they come in contact with me, if what they come into contact with and confrontation with is frustration or rudeness, or how about apathy? Are they coming into confrontation with God? If that's what they are meeting with when they uh, meet with me. If that's what's in their life because I'm in their life. I didn't have to be in their life. God put me here. Uh, what has been the result for them of me being in their life? I think that's, that's a, I think a helpful way to, to uh, rephrase this notion that we're going to be talking about. So we can generally say that things like the fruit of the Spirit, we can think of those lists and say, okay, if, if I exude these things when people are confronted by my presence then they are being confronted by the true God as we, as we are together. Uh, and that certainly is a goal of, uh, of this book, and I hope that that's come through. When we come into this chapter, really this one and the next one, uh, I will say he does get a bit more specific in terms of what he's, what he's asking us to think about. What he's specifically talking about most in this chapter are the times, the inevitable times, when conflict arises between us, interpersonal conflict, right, um, within families, uh, but in particular, interpersonal conflict within the family of God, within a local church, even. Does that happen? Sure. I almost, well, I don't say, I certainly don't hope it happens, but I mean, if you have a church that exists together for 20 years and that never happens, what does that mean? They don't, they don't give a rip about each other. They don't know, none of them know any of them. None of them do anything with each other. If they're all sinners and they are meaningfully involved in each other's lives over the course of 20 years, there's going to be some conflict come up. Um, I, don't, I haven't had any conflict yet in two years with the neighbors four down and across the street that I've never met. I've never had any conflict with them yet. We are of 100% peaceful relationship. But that's not a good sign, Right? 
conflicts will be inevitable when there are close relationships with fallen people. Um, And so that's going to come up. And the question is, for this chapter, when that does happen, uh, am I prepared beforehand to think of those opportunities and those times as what they should be? Those are times as well when I am to die to myself. Those are times when God is supposed to be put on display and not me uh, in, in, a, in a fallen sort of way, a way that we're very prone to, which means we're helped by a chapter like this. right? Um, so uh, how does he want us to go about this? What's going to be his suggestion? Well, I didn't put it up here, but the, the subtitle of this chapter is uh, speak... Well, actually, did I even write it down right? I'm teaching the chapter. Yeah, the goals of speaking the truth in love. The goals of speaking the truth in love. He gets speaking the truth in love from Ephesians chapter 4, right? This is the command to us, to one another. Um, We are to speak the truth in love. And what we're going to think about is, what are the goals that God has in mind that would happen among us as we do that with each other? There are, among other things, we'll be looking at two particular places in the Bible and and drawing out what, uh, what we see there. Uh, and we'll start with the first one right now, and that is, and you can turn here if you like, I'm going to have it on the screen, and it's not too small, I don't think. Uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verses 15 through 18. God is giving uh, his, his law to his people in the Old Testament. Uh, let me just start by reading this. There's a lot of things we need, to, we need to notice here. Starting in verse 15, God says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, there are four things that that I want you to to take note of here, and I'm going to sort of highlight or underline them as we go along. First one, do you notice how how interpersonal this is? This is not some sort of um, of a mandate to the nobles regarding the lowly people and how you ought to think of them. This is a neighbor-to-neighbor passage. Uh, Look at what is bolded here. Verse 15, your neighbor. And this is speaking about the same context. He's jumping back and forth between these ways of describing the relationships that they have with each other. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You will not go around as a slanderer among your people. Uh, You won't stand up against the life of your neighbor. Don't hate your brother. Reason frankly with your neighbor. Don't bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Love your neighbor. All the way through, the emphasis is, is, these are commandments to these people, brother to brother, sister to sister, within the context of the believing community. It's a neighbor to neighbor passage. Secondly, notice in verse 17, Uh, how it defines hatred of brother. This doesn't give a a complete uh, statement, but it is pretty important to see what he says here. Uh, Look at the contrast. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but, instead of that, but you shall reason frankly 
with your neighbor. What is the opposite of choosing to step out? Remember, this chapter is on speaking. In the midst of conflict, especially, um, I'm in that conflict. I choose not to reason frankly with my brother. Maybe in that situation, I, well, we'll get to some details here. But there is a way in which the opposite of that can be hatred of them. Don't hate them in your heart. Instead, reason frankly with them. Now, like I said, this is not all that the Bible says about a context of conflict. You've got places like 1 Peter 4, 8, which says that love, one of the specific things that love does is it covers a multitude of sins. So there are plenty of times where conflict might potentially rise up, but it's of such a nature that I am able to simply, by, in, lo- through, in love, cover that sin. Sometimes I can be wronged and just choose to say nothing about it, I don't tuck it away and let it fester and get infected. I just choose to cover it in love and overlook it. That, can, that, that needs to happen sometimes, right? Proverbs 19.11 says, It is our glory to overlook an offense. That's called a glory. And there are plenty of times, uh, I mean, I know I've had moments in my life I can think of specifically where that was my, that was my problem. I was just, I was going to be right in whatever situation, and so I couldn't let something go without speaking to it because the truth had to be borne out, which what really that means I had to be shown to be in the right. Plenty of times the answer is to not speak but to overlook in love. But you also know there are lots of times because of the nature of an offense that you just, love would not do that. Right? It wouldn't be loving to overlook that thing. So if, if we're talking about that kind of situation where it's not loving to overlook it and I don't say anything about it, what does this verse tell us? I think that's where this verse comes in and says, that is hating your brother in your heart. Something needed to be said. Something needed to be... There are real consequences to this situation being as it does. And uh, if I don't speak at all, I'm just hating them. I'm not loving them in the way that God would have me use this relationship to love them. Now, in that context, how are we to do it? Well, he says here, reason frankly with your neighbor. And we'll talk more about that. That's an interesting way to phrase it. The third thing I want you to notice in this is, do you notice how, uh, how this ties us together? This, this, the end of that verse right here makes something clear that's pretty profound. I think we, we might do a good job today of acting like this is not the case, that when God puts us together in relationship with each other, there are ways in which we are bound up together that we just can't get, you can't escape from. It's what it is. And if that's the case, what that means is that in those relationships, what happens on the other side of that oftentimes cannot help but affect me, and I can't help but affect them in these relationships. If I'm in a context like this and I choose to not act in love, I am incurring sin. You shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. We're tied together in our relationships that God's put us in. We just can't, we can't help it. And so that makes, that makes a lot of what we've been, what I think this book has been, been holding out to us, it, it makes it necessary. It makes it inevitable. Because we just can't escape those sorts of those sorts of ties. 
Uh, the fourth thing that I, and the last thing I'll bring to your attention in these verses, is how it ties uh, these things, our, in, our relationships with each other, and how we conduct ourselves in our relationships, how it ties that to God himself. You noticed, I think, that twice here he finishes giving his command of how we are to be with each other, and he ends it with, I am the Lord, right? I am the Lord. Uh, there's something that I, I don't think that this is a stretch. You can tell me afterward if you think that it is. But I was struck he, hearing this. It, it made me think of um, in Exodus 34 when God reveals himself to Moses. You remember God's going to go by him and proclaim his name. Um, the attributes that God names of himself, it's amazing. I mean, you can see them all the way throughout this, uh, these verses in terms of what he is calling us to be with each other. There's a connection there. Um, I, uh, I tried this week to not, not put too much text up on the screen. You're going to really laugh in about five slides because there's one that's really bad, but I'll just own it up from the beginning. So, uh, can I read the, the right? The left side is what we just looked at, Leviticus 19. The right side is that passage in Exodus 34. Here's what it says. Um, it says, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. It's always, and that's just a set of verses that, um, that, that hit us uh, and, and they, they, they stick in our memory, especially the last of it, right? There's a lot of thought to be done about what does he mean there. Do you notice how this describes, how God describes himself and where you see them in the, other, uh, in the other section, you've got um, God is merciful and gracious. And so, verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. You've got that God is a God slow to anger. And so what is our response in a, in a situation of conflict? We must reason frankly with our neighbor. Uh, God is a God of steadfast love. And so you shall not hate your brother in your heart. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Uh, God is a God of faithfulness. And so you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. I mean, there is, he's not just coming up with an idea of how he would like us to live. He's saying, I made you in my image. Your relationships are given to you by me to be used to reflect who I am to the world and to each other. And so his prescriptions for us and how we are to go through times of conflict match the way that God is, not just with us, but in himself. So then, um, let's shift gears a little bit then. When it comes to the need to do what we're being told to do in verse 17, right? Speak frankly with your neighbor. And that's clearly a time of conflict. How, how, how enjoyable is, is that afternoon? Speak frankly with your neighbor. Uh, now you know you've got to do it because to not do it now is to hate him. I don't hate him. I must not hate him. You're not looking forward to that. Uh, it's, it makes you nervous. You're worried about what you might say. 
speaking frankly with your neighbor in that kind of thing can be, can be difficult. Um, which is why I appreciated a piece of this chapter where he, he, and I think he's addressing that when he says, it's important that you spend time thinking about um, what it is like to be on the receiving end of that. Uh, imagining yourself to be the one about to be met with and spoken to uh, who needs to receive some, frank, some loving, frank uh, conversation because of something that has happened. What, is it, um, what does it mean for the person who's on the receiving side? Um, and here's some things that he, that he asks us to, to remember. I'm, I think that these are true of all of us in here. If it's not true of you, then you can raise your hand and out yourself to us all and tell us why it's not true of you. So here are, here are some things he brings up. Uh, when I'm the one receiving and I'm doing what, I, what we do, right? Struggling with feeling offended or with, uh, with you know what I mean. Some things to, to, to think about. Um, are these things, do I really believe these things are true of me? Um, do I suffer from the deceitfulness of sin? Is it only everyone else's sin that has the, the characteristic of deceiving the mind? Or is that true of my sin too? Does my sin deceive me? Um, I am prone to thinking unbiblically. None of us, if we're believers, do that pervasively in every situation all the time. But none of us are ever free from unbiblical thinking at any given moment, right? And we know what the flesh does. We know that it's, I think it's even appropriate, ooh, use the laser pointer, to use that word prone. The, the way that, that Paul describes himself in Romans 7, if you take it to be a description of his believing life, that's pretty powerful language. And that's not Paul. That's, that's us. That's me. Um, I don't do my best thinking amidst suffering, difficulty, or distress. Is that true of you? If I'm in the midst of a conflicting situation, that counts as a distress and a difficulty. And surely I have to know that, that I'm like everyone else and that I, I don't do my best thinking in those moments. I'm usually not aware that I'm not doing my best thinking or I would think something else, right? But I don't do my best thinking in those times. Uh, my view of life tends to be shaped by my experiences. We heard last week the really important reminder, and Tripp has, has done this a couple of times in this book, that we don't live out of the facts of our lives. We live out of our interpretation of the facts of our lives. It's just the way we are, which is why you can have a situ- situation and have two people in the same situation respond completely differently. It wasn't It wasn't about, ultimately, the facts of the situation. It was about how they interpreted those facts. We know that we do those things. We live in a subjective sort of mode. If those things are true, then, well, and let's put it like this. Um, If I'm about to come into one of those moments, I had better have been able to take the time to review my resume a little bit so that I can come into those moments with, with the properly humble posture. That doesn't mean that every time anyone has something constructive to say to me that they're right. It doesn't mean that. But it probably means that they're going to be right more than I will feel that they're right. Right? 
we just have to know ourselves. We have to know our, our tendencies. And we have to remember that, if, that uh, even if they don't do it perfectly, when my brother comes to me like that, they're doing exactly what the Bible has commanded them to do, and they're doing it as an alternative to hating me. That has to mean something, right? Now, when I think about that on the receiving end, it can help me to think about how I might go about it on the giving end. When, when, when the Lord calls me to be a, a voice of, of reason uh, in someone's life, I want to go out of my way to make clear to them that this is why I'm doing this and that I know I may not be doing it perfectly, but I hope you believe me that I am doing this. Be- I, I, I say this because I think it will be good for you to hear it and to consider it, and I do this because I love you. Um, and please forgive me if, if I'm, if I'm you, you know, how those things can go. But they, they are moments that require preparation, whether we're on, on one end of that or the other. Um, any, we're going to shift gears again here. Any, any thoughts or comments before we, we move on from that? Personal stories about how it was done right or wrong or... No? Okay. All right. So, um, times of conflict. They can be difficult and painful. Because of that, we're slow to want to, uh, to do them uh, or uh, to want to do them. We, we are quick to avoid them at all costs, maybe, is a better way to, to put it. Um, we are in need of something from both sides because of, of the, the fear we can we can bring uh, to the notion of times of conflict with each other. We're in need of some comfort, some encouraging comfort, uh, to think rightly about that and to, and to obey the Lord, to trust him, to do what he says he's going to do, um, and to be willing to be used as an instrument for him to do it. We need, well, there's some comfort that we need to be encouraged. And we also need to be, on the other side, we need to remember that there is a, there is a call from God to do these things. Right, um, and so there. Uh, yeah, we need we need both of those things. Tripp makes such a powerful point in this chapter when he says that that is that is what we have in the gospel. We have a we have comfort as we have a call. That is what the full uh, the full message of, of what God has done for us in Christ and why and who He did it to and what He calls us to live. Uh, for in light of that, we have both sides. We have a comfort and the call. So this leads us to the second place we're going to look. And now we come to the New Testament, into Romans chapter 8. Here's where I'm about to click onto that slide that is embarrassing in terms of how, much, how many words. So if you want to just turn to Romans 8, you might be better off. But I wanted to put it up there so I could highlight some things, even if you can't read them. At least you can kind of see where they are in general. Romans 8, 1 through 17, all 17 verses aren't on here. But if you just put the first 11 up, it looks like this. It's not that, that's like 12, maybe 14 point. I don't think there's anything, well, anyway, yeah. I did the best I can. So, um, Romans 8, 1 through 17, 1 through 11, as Tripp is writing this chapter, he says, take note of, of the, the tremendous comfort that we are told about concerning the gospel here. We're going to get to the call that really, you shift gears quite a bit in verse 12. Uh, but can I just read this to us? You can read along in your Bible or, or up here if you can. Verses 1 through 11. 
There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, if you've read that looking down, you can look up and just take note of some of these explicit statements. These are statements that that come out of the reality that we know to be the case from the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation for us as we stand in Christ. Uh, We have been set free from the law of sin and death. Uh, The righteous requirements of the law, he says, might be fulfilled in us just to make the verb flow the right way grammatically. That's not saying, I hope that the law will be, uh, that the requirements of the law will be fulfilled in you. He's saying this is what, uh, when God punished Jesus on on the cross for our sins, the result was for us that the righteous requirement of the law was fulfilled in us. That's what happened. I stand before God as the perfect judge of all holiness and purity and and am looked upon with no condemnation because because of the realities that he's talking about here. That's an unbelievable comfort. Uh, Verse 9, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if the spirit of God dwells in you. These are statements of fact about us because they're statements about what God has done in us, what God has done for us. What do you think about about that 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 section? What an open-ended statement. But surely there's some there's some thoughts that are coming up as you're reading this or uh, ways you see how this might apply. I can tell you I've done a good job of Correcting, I think, from my previous couple of times, I am expecting there to be some discussion time in this. So, and uh, Mike. Absolutely. That's right. Y'all hear what he's saying? Uh, he's pointing us back to these unfortunate realities on the slide before. Those things are true of us all. At the same time, that these things are true of us all. 
So we bring that into what we're talking about here. It, are there ways that these realities might provide us not just a comfort and a joy in life in general? That's exactly what they do. But if we're thinking about moments where, where there is conflict between us, and I've thought about it carefully, and it seems that the best that I can see that the Lord would desire to use me right now to, be, to, to, to bring uh, the character of God into view in a particular situation, and that makes me a bit nervous. Could it be that these realities are a tremendous comfort for us in, in that, in that very sort of, of situation? At this point, Tripp says this. He says, uh, One gap is in understanding how the comfort of the gospel radically changes our approach to life in the here and now. Daily confession of sin is essential to a gospel-driven lifestyle. It makes no sense to rationalize, blame shift, or rewrite history to make myself look better. It makes no sense to do that. It makes no sense because it's not true anyway, but it also makes no sense because ah, oops, we don't need to do those things. This is where we stand. I'm imperfect. But if I've trusted in Christ, there is no condemnation for me. What need do I have to blame shift, to seek to rationalize, to rewrite history as I portray it? I'm going to go back to where I left off right there, right? To make myself look better. This is a denial of the gospel. Self-examination and confession flow out of a deep confidence that Christ's work is effective for me today. I come to him confident that he forgives me. Do you agree with him that that seems to be, I mean, he's saying all this as a gap in our understanding. Is that something that we can struggle to, to, um, to live in light of in these sorts of contexts? So that's verses 1 through 11 of Romans 8. The comfort that we see from the gospel. We'll come to verse 12, and you're going to see, I mean, even in this, there is, there is call here. Right. Uh, if I went back to it, you, you have uh, you have statements of um, uh, of, of condition. You, you have statements of of living in a certain way and what we must not do. There is there is call in verses one through eleven, and there's going to be some comfort in verses uh, twelve through seventeen. But as a whole, it really is a helpful way to see the difference. This slide's a little bit better. See, can make it bigger. Let me read verses twelve through seventeen. Paul continues, he says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And you see the call that we have here? I mean, it doesn't get much more explicit than in verse 12. So then, right, as a result of the the realities of what God has done for us in the gospel that I had nothing to do with. I was dead at the bottom of the ocean when he, when he moved 
on me when he gave me life. He's raised me. A dead guy doesn't raise himself from the dead, right? He has been gracious to me, and the realities of that are a tremendous comfort to me. But the, but the conclusion to that is, if, that, if he's done that in me, I am a debtor. That, that's, a, that's a pretty dramatic call to me. And it, it, the, the dramatic language doesn't really diminish. Um, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Um, these are calls to obedience. And specifically, they're calls to, to a willingness to be what I say I am, be what the Bible says that I am. My life is not my own. I have been bought with a price. Uh, we are his instruments, right? We have been created in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2, for good works, which he created beforehand that we would walk in them. There, there, there are, there are uh, mandates and calls that God gives to those that he has rescued by his grace. And there are things that it's, a, it's saying here, children of God hear and take seriously. We take them very seriously. So if these two things are true, I made a little table here. Uh, if we belong to him, um, whether we are on the, uh, the giving end or the receiving end of some of what we're talking about in this chapter, of the, the uh, how do I approach conflict, Romans 8 gives us a couple of things that we just simply don't get to say anymore, that, we're, that we're, we really like to say. Uh, it speaks to how we were responding to the gospel. Here's my chart. You see the, if it says this, then I can't say that. If it says in Romans 8, 2, that the spirit, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. If that's true, then I can't say, oh, it's too hard. I, I just don't get to say that. It might be hard. It will be hard. But I don't get to say it's too hard if at the cost of his <clears throat> um, if at the cost of his son's life uh, he has set me free from the law of sin and death. I don't get to say it's too hard. And I, and I must not say that because it is not true. We are faced with many hard things, things that in and of ourselves we are utterly incapable of, but we are not by ourselves anymore. The Spirit of God is, dwells with us and works through us and calls us to follow in, 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 in what he commands us. And he is the one who will bring the work that God is doing to a completion. The things that he calls me to, I cannot do as an unbeliever. The things that he calls me to, I can do as a believer and I must do. So when he calls me to view my connections with, my, with those that he's put around me, my relationships, as something that exists in service to him, even when it is difficult at times. It is not above my ability, and it's certainly not above my calling. I don't get to say it's too hard. The, uh, the second part is true as well, that I still have covered up there. This goes to verse 13. If it says, you are debtors, and if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If it says that, then I don't get to say, I don't want to. You may not want to. We, all, we don't want to a lot of times. But we don't get to say, I don't want to. Do we? It's just not an option that we have. 
And that's not the whole story. We have to go past I'm willing to and think about how should I. Things get, get, this doesn't just make everything simple. But one thing is simple, and that is that God has, has given me the ability to obey him, and I have the obligation to follow him in obedience, whatever that will look like, right? I don't get to say it's too hard. I don't get to say I don't want to. Um, does anybody feel offended, or, uh, or, or is there another chance to, to raise your hand and have some, have some dialogue? Um, any thoughts as we... I'm going to take your silence as an implicit stamp of approval. Of course, you could approve and still talk, but that'd be okay. Yeah. yeah. And we've said it before, but I don't think we're living in a time of life that has made these things particularly easy. I think it may be, this may be really arrogant to say, but um, I wonder if the, the, this, the temperature of things in terms of how we have learned to conduct a society tends to make these things harder. Because it's just so... There is no cost to saying those things. You just get to be silent like we're always silent all the time anyway. It's a, there's no... Um, now, that's not the same in an immediate family. That's what's so great about immediate families. You're forced into situations that you should be in, should be willing to do, but you can just slough off anywhere else. You don't get to slough them off there. You have to. Uh, he's so good at, at that, uh, putting us in the places where we need to be to grow and to help each other grow uh, against our will, kicking and screaming sometimes. But. Okay, where are we? Okay, so uh, we are talking about, we're talking about speaking, right? And specifically in the realm of, often in the realm of conflict. And we're still talking about realms in which something has happened that love cannot cover. Love cannot just overlook. A lot of things belong there. But we're talking now about some things that, uh, where that cannot be, uh, you can't just brush over them without it being an act of hatred to the other person. And he's saying in those, in those contexts, what we're commanded to do is to be willing in love to speak frankly to our brothers and sisters, our neighbors, our people, as Leviticus put it. Uh, we have to be willing to do that and trust him with it as we seek to do it in as godly a way as, uh, as, as we are able. He asks a couple of really good questions toward the end of the chapter. Um, he, he, he basically says, okay, in doing it like this, what is it that we are avoiding? What are we managing to avoid by choosing to obey God in, and, and handle our relationships in this way? And he gives two, two examples. Um, if we do it this way, we are saved from a couple of alternatives. We're saved from bearing a grudge. That's another way we could handle this. Just not say anything. But remember, it's not in the realm of the things that can be just covered and looked over. So I don't say anything, and it, and it eats at me. And I go over it again in my mind. And I don't say, and then finally someone says, are you okay? And I say, fine. But you, everyone knows you're not fine. You're, this is what bearing a grudge is. See if you uh, can <laughs> relate to this description. One form of passive hatred is bearing a grudge. We keep a record of what someone has done against us. We go over it again and again, each time growing more angry and giving ourselves more reason to despise the offender. Listen to this. Our anger grows, as a result, even when no further sin has been committed. 
It becomes the interpretive grid through which we assess everything the person does. No matter what he does, he cannot do anything right in our eyes. It's the kind of thing that's really helpful to actually describe like that and give voice to because we don't think of it that way. And yet when we hear it, we immediately know that's exactly what that was last week. That's exactly what that was. I mean, it's hard to... It, well, we're pretty good at deceiving ourselves, but it's, it's hard to, to, uh, to manage to not see what we have done when it's described in those terms. That's exactly what happens. And his point is that in choosing to do what is the hard thing in those circumstances, it does save us from this fate. It saves us from, from this outcome, this alternative. There's another one, and that is gossiping. It might be that maybe I just don't say anything to them because that would be hard, but it's not hard to say things to other people. There's no conflict there. I can voice without having any of the nervousness connected. And he says, uh, gossip doesn't lead a person to humble confession before God or others. When I gossip, I confess the sin of another person to someone who is not involved. Gossip doesn't restrain sin. It encourages it. It doesn't build someone's character. It destroys his reputation. And it's helpful to me to, to see this description and to remember what we said at the beginning. God's the one that's given us our relationships. And he expects us to use them. Remember we said that we've been seeing in this book the suggestion that maybe we are not only undervaluing our relationships, but we're underusing them. We're not using them in the ways that God intends for us to use our relationships for his glory and to actually build up his people. This is such a great example. If that was what it was all for in the beginning, and I take alternatives to what God is telling me he would have me do, you see the effects. My speech is supposed to, when there needs to be, when conflict is happening, godly speech is supposed to bring someone into confrontation with God so that they are struck and they maybe in certain contexts even they are convicted and they have a chance to, to repent and to apologize and to be forgiven and then rejoice and move on. But instead of that, you have this. He doesn't even have a chance to make humble confession because he didn't even know what's being said. And instead, all of this destruction is happening. So it's a helpful sort of, sort of thing. When I'm faced with notions of, like, exercising, if I would just think about what that is and what I'm maybe going to accomplish, even that isn't enough sometimes to get me to do it. But if I, if I do think about it, if a doctor goes through and says, okay, well, you're, you're faced with the possibility of diabetes here within the next 10 to 12 years. This is what will be happening to your heart. And if I'm faced with what the exercise will allow me to avoid, then that itself is a really good motivation. Uh, and these are things I think we can agree that are worth working to avoid. I don't want to be in this place. And not just I don't want to be there, but other people are watching me and seeing how my children, the children of the church, my, my extended family members, they're watching how we conduct ourselves. I don't want them to be led to a place where they would do this, where this would be them. That's not exactly what he was talking about in Leviticus, but remember the connection in Leviticus that we are tied together. And through one person's sins, another person may be drawn into and incur sin uh, as a result. There is, no, there is no individual persons in that way. We are connected together 
for better or for worse. And we do well to remember it. So if there's one thing that I think we should remember from this chapter, um, it's the balance that he pointed out to us from Romans 8 about the, uh, the comfort and call of the gospel. These two realities held together in our hands can have a very powerful effect on how we think about conflicts and how we would choose to walk forward in them. Uh, this is the last thing I have up here is this quote right here. Tripp says, This is the goal of confrontation, not to force behavioral change, but to encourage people's new natures with the gospel. The gospel is what turns idolaters into worshipers of God. It's what makes the self-righteous humble and willing to listen. The gospel turns victims into helpers and the self-absorbed into those who love to serve. Hope for change always rests on Christ. Such a, such a powerful statement. Uh, we have uh, a couple of minutes. Thoughts you'd like to share? Questions? Comments? Bonnie? Okay. Oh, absolutely. That's such a good example. And the way that... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it is. It's easier as we sit here right now. But you're, you're describing the inevitable of how, how, how difficult this can become. How do I decide what falls in the realm of it's a glory to overlook an offense? And how do I decide which ones... Uh, no, it, this needs to be... Um, but the further steps after that continue to be difficult. I mean, I... I I think we do so, maybe most of all, we do what you, the, the, the alternative you said there of we decide, I'll overlook this, but we can't, we can't, we haven't really thought about it enough. Maybe that's what we do. We don't, we don't count the cost. And we don't think, okay, if I am going to overlook this, here's what this means. This means I'm going, I am, I'm choosing to respond in love. Love, love overlooks, love does not keep a memory of wrongs. You know, the, the first Corinthians sorts of... I'm, I'm saying, I'm going to do that with this. And I'm committed to this. Um, uh, we overlook, maybe too... Uh, too lightly, too, too... What's the word? Carelessly, I guess. That's a, that's a very good point. Yeah. And it's helpful, maybe it's a good thing to end on, too, that the, the things that, that, that we are being pointed to here, I hope that it's clear that those things, this is what the Bible would have for us. This is God's best for us in these things. It doesn't mean because we've summed it up in 60 minutes that it's an easy thing or it should be. It's, we all know it's not an easy thing. But how helpful to be brought back to what, what God's intent is. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> love is love is patient boy well good well thank you guys uh, do, do you want me to repeat what you said on the mic I don't know if she heard it if she wants to hear the to, to hear it replayed or anything okay all right we'll let it go all right uh, we, we are dismissed guys thank you <laughs>